0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I'll be reading from uh, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we're going to look at Psalm 130, and we're going to be sharing together uh, in a great truth, and I've entitled the message today, Full, Free, Joyous Forgiveness. The conversion of John Wesley, the famous Methodist preacher and uh, hymn writer, on the evening of May 24th, 1738, is quite moving. He attended a little nonconformist church at Aldersgate Street in London and heard the introduction of Martin Luther's work on Romans being read. It was an occasion when he described his heart as being strangely warm. What isn't so well known is that in the afternoon of that same day, Wesley had attended a vesper service at St. Paul's Cathedral, where Psalm 130 was being sung as an anthem. Hearing that Psalm in song was God's initial spade work in opening the heart of uh, John Wesley to salvation. So here we are with this psalm, and it fits hand in glove with the two psalms that were well presented last week by Sam and Coy, Uh, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Uh, Along with uh, Psalm 143, they also speak of uh, the offer of forgiveness by grace, aside from human works, so much so that James Montgomery Boyce describes Psalm 130 as Martin Luther's Pauline psalm. It dovetails beautifully in with what uh, uh, Paul's emphasis is on the grace of God in salvation in the New Testament. So let's go and look at this psalm and look at one of the most significant parts of this psalm, which I think uh, concerns forgiveness. What we see in the first two verses is a deep need of forgiveness. And in that we see a fearful condition. It begins with the words, out of the depths. If you've ever been caught in an ocean rip or grappled with undertow or being tossed about by waves while body surfing, then you'll understand the Psalmist picture of the controlling effects of sin. The Hebrew word refers to being caught in dangerous and deep waters. It's a description, uh, like you find over in Psalm 69. Uh, The wicked whirlpool or undertow of iniquity, and iniquity is mentioned in verses 3 and 8, it catches us and, and corrupts us and pushes and pulls us all over the place, often causing us to toss and turn with regret and fear, sorrow, even mental anguish and darkness. Sin makes us feel out of our depth. It's a scary position to be in, to be dominated by sin and feel distance from God. The healthy aspect is that a time like that often causes us to turn to God. Writing on this psalm, John Calvin says, nobody can presume to intrude himself into the presence of God. Nor can we um, live in a fantasy world where we think we are basically good people at heart and where we flatter ourselves for doing right actions, or we go about life ignoring our sins through inattention. Right from birth, we're given to wrong actions and suffer from the corrupting effects of iniquity. I used to say with regard to our children, we could easily write a book on sin in regard to our children. I mean, just look at our children, how they carry on when they're caught out doing unkind or wicked things. Something goes off in their depths. Their conscience kicks into gear. It's often followed by tears and blame and excuses. According to Romans 1, we suffer the effects of God's deserved wrath, a terrible and impending reality. It's revealed every day against us for the unrighteous we carry out in our lives. It's given to show us how God is extremely unhappy with our wrongdoing. It violates his holy nature, and it makes us feel the depths of our sin. It's interesting that over the last year, we have been, we've seen people calling on God in natural disasters of fire and flood. Oh, God. Oh, my God. It's, it's a reactionary call. But here in Psalm, 30, Psalm 130, it's more a needy call. It comes from being deeply made aware of sin. Oh, my Lord. I think it's what people need to uh, come to in today's society. They need to be awakened to a sense of their sin and and the dreadful loss that it causes. uh, Way above a loss of property or, or way above a loss of livelihood. It's a loss of relationship with God. It's separation from God. So can I encourage you today, make a point of praying for somebody, praying for somebody who needs to be convinced and convicted of the controlling effects of sin. It may be a person you haven't uh, thought about for a long time or uh, prayed for uh, recently. Uh, Pray that they may be caused to truly cry out to God in their need. The psalm goes on, and in verse 2, it highlights a call for help. I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Uh, We've been looking through the Psalms and looking at some of the elements in the Psalms, and they often arise out of brokenness and contain a cry for help, a crying out to God. For wishing that God would listen to their dilemma and their plight and come to their aid and free them, free them from their affliction or their conviction or the desertion of him. If ever you want to know the degree of dilemma, then I suggest you read The Plight of Man and the Power of God by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's quite sobering. The psalmist here is in deadly earnest though. Notice in verse 2, he is in desperate desperate need for God to show him mercy. It's like when we've done something wrong and we feel all out of sorts and we toss and turn in our bed or we go silent or we find ourselves stricken with guilt and shame. And our uneasy conscience torments us and causes us to rationalize and to make excuses or to head off into some of the most excruciating forms of self-justification. In the face of our dilemma, I love what C.H. Spurgeon says in his, uh, his wonderful set called The Treasury of David. He says, God is always listening and waiting for his children's cry." far more prepared to answer than we are to ask. Crying out to God is so that our prayers may be heard and answered. Just think of the tax collector who went into the temple to pray in Luke 18. He prayed, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm sure the Lord loves a prayer like that. He listens to it and he loves to answer it. But here, the psalmist is saying, he's concerned. He's concerned about not just being a sinner and not just the effects of his sinning, but he's concerned about the degree and breadth of his sinning. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He knows the Lord knows everything about him. He says, if the Lord were to call any of us out and list everything we'd done, uh, we wouldn't have a leg to stand on. It would be excruciating. It would be utterly crushing. It reminds me of Bildad, uh, the Shuite and his pertinent question in Job chapter 25 and verse 4. How then, with our record of sins, how then can a man be righteous before God? How then can a person be born of a woman? Be clean. How can I get free of my mistakes? Well, it's only through God showing us mercy. That's what it says in Romans chapter nine and verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I don't know about you, but with me, there's been numerous times in life when I've had a reason to cry out to God I remember one morning before daybreak, I was so distraught because of my failure to measure up to my father's expectations and in such anguish because of my fa- my failing God with my reactions to my father. But before daybreak, I retreated to a shearing shed and hid in a wool bin among the fleeces and I just poured out my heart to God. And maybe it's been some other location for you. You've known times when your failure has overwhelmed you, but it's carried you to God, and you've knelt at your bedside and poured out your heart to him and pleaded for his help. Well, God takes that depth of need to heart. And God just, it's part of God's working. He takes us to those depths because that's part of his working. But as we move on in this psalm together, we notice there's a decided confidence that comes into the psalmist. But with you, there is forgiveness, he says. And here we see our firm assurance. We we see his firm assurance, but then we see how we can have a firm assurance of forgiveness. And it starts with having confidence in God. How how terrible it is. If all we could expect of God was a record of our wrongs, I'm not sure about you, but that would be dreadful. But fortunately, there is God's little big word in the Bible. It is a word of contrast and a word of countering and often indicates action that he takes or has taken. It's a three-letter word. It's the word but... Keep your eye out for it as you read through the Bible. Here it is in Psalm 130. God does have a record of all our sins, but, but he is prepared to freely forgive us of everything we have done wrong, to wipe the listings of our sin on a cluttered whiteboard entirely clean. He's the only one. Our Lord is the only one who can match the depth of our sin with even deeper forgiveness. It's interesting that the verb used by the translators in verse 4 is the word is. With you, Lord, there is. It's in the present tense. But the Hebrew is even stronger. Where no verb is used, the Hebrew says, with you forgiveness right here and right now. It tells us the Lord loves to forgive. He means we don't have to wait to be pardoned until the last day when Jesus returns with final judgment. Forgiveness can be known now. It means you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it with brownie points. You can simply cry out to the Lord and ask him for it. And it's a present moment of experience. No matter who you are, or wherever you are, or whatever you've done, you can know God's complete pardon. But know this, God's forgiveness of our sins doesn't come with a wave of the hand or a tut-tut, pat on the head, with a there, there, Uh, never mind. No, it says, with you, with you, There is forgiveness. The you means it comes consistent with God's whole person and whole nature. It's a a type of that that no one else can offer. And it's deeply rooted, deeply achieved, and deeply given out of his love and out of his holiness and grace and mercy. It, It arises from the wondrous atoning suffering sacrifice of God's son, who fulfilled every part of his father's law and had satisfied every aspect of his father's holy nature. The, the Puritans of the uh, 17th century were fond of saying that only that which satisfies the conscience of God would satisfy the conscience of man. You see, God's forgiveness penetrates the inner regions and recesses of our consciousness. It goes to places that no psychologist or psychiatrist can reach. Dr. Jeffrey Bingham, uh, the principal of the Bible College where Helen and I trained, says in his little book, The Cleansing of the Memories, on the cross, when Christ was made sin for us, he took all our impurity, the guilt of evil, the moral pollution of our beings and our actions and utterly purified us as by some holy detergent. No sin from the past can ever come against us, for we are pure by the death of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. The blood of Christ has purified our consciences from dead works. So no one should ever seek to recycle their memories through some technique they have for purifying the past, for it has been purified and released from frightening memories. Only a conscience liberating gospel will do that. And only a conscious liberating gospel will produce exquisite joy and bring us to the highest levels of exhilaration. I remember a young woman Who'd been caught in the bondage of prostitution, uh, she came to Christ and uh, was involved in christian teaching and she went along to uh, a conference and uh, there was a study on forgiveness and she said to me afterwards, she said, Oh God is so good, He has made me a virgin again well that 's the extent and the depth of god 's forgiveness. People need that they need god 's powerful, deep purifying work any weak evangelism can only produce a weak release for the conscience it's god's dynamic powerful good news that addresses our sinfulness that uh, meets all the needs of a holy uh, of a holy god and meets all the demands of his wrath and satisfies all those that can actually bring us to liberty. No wonder the Bible says the Son of Man, that is Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. No wonder Jesus could come to a sinful woman and say to her, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Well, God's thorough atonement means that consciences can be cleansed and set free. And here the psalmist pleads for mercy he pleads that he might be heard. And, and, and then what he's saying in the psalm, that it, he's been shown mercy through forgiveness. I remember reading a book called Freely Flow of Forgiveness by Jeff Bingham. And in it he says, God's forgiveness is a gloriously liberating experience. It assures us of God's love and his acceptance of us. It sets us free in life to live in in simple honesty. When we're forgiven, every one of our sins, past, present, and future is covered, so we can live in simple honesty. For me, it means I can acknowledge openly my sordid past and my cruel, brotherly bullying of my sisters. Uh, There was a time when I sat uh, my sisters down uh, in my father's um, study and told them um, honestly, that I was sorry for what I'd done. And I asked their forgiveness. I don't think I've ever fully got it because they keep on speaking about their rough treatment in their upbringing. Doesn't matter. I know that with God, there is forgiveness. Going to a um, youth camp at a place called Camp Kennedy, West of Albany, in Western Australia, as a young Christian, I I picked up a book called Love Is Now by Peter Gilchrist. And in it he speaks about God's absent-mindedness when it comes to our sin. And and he tells a lovely story concerning his young four-year-old daughter, Wendy Jo. Uh, She taught him and his wife, Marilyn, a beautiful lesson on forgiveness. Wendy Joe had just been put to bed in their small two-bedroom apartment. Often Marilyn would put Wendy uh, to bed in their own bedroom to stop the chatter between the children when they should have been going to sleep. Marilyn was in the kitchen doing the dishes when she heard Wendy Joe jumping up and down on the bed. And after asking her to stop, she heard her doing it again. If I have to tell you again, Marilyn told Wendy, you will be sent to the naughty corner. Besides mummy's favorite pretty lamp is on the table next to the bed. And I'd feel terrible if anything was to happen to it. Now be quiet and go to sleep. The lamp was a family heirloom. Back in the kitchen for the third time, Marilyn thought she heard the sound of a bouncing child. Just before she reached the bedroom, there was a distant crash, a distinct crash. After executing the promised discipline and ordering mary Jo to the stool in the Nordic corner, Marilyn went over, t- took Wendy in her arms, hugged her and said, The reason I disciplined you was because you bounced on the bed and I told you not to. Marilyn turned and swept up the broken pieces of the shattered lamp while Wendy watched on with dismay. The broken pieces were tipped noisily into the rubbish bin and uh, Marilyn said to her daughter, as far as the lamp is concerned, mummy loves you and forgives you and I'll never mention it to you again. Next day, Marilyn was walking through the apartment and inadvertently stepped on one of Wendy's toys and smashed it. She felt terrible. Wendy ran over to her mother, picked up the broken toy and said, Mummy, I forgive you for that and I'll never mention it to you again. It was a portrait of God's forgiveness. God says to us over in Hebrews 10, verse 17, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. We can call this divine forgetfulness or holy amnesia. But more correctly we should say it is divine non-remembering. God refuses to remember our sins. So if then God refuses to remember our sins, why should we choose to remember them? Shouldn't we choose to forget them, seeing Christ has so purged our sins working them all out to exhaustion and extinction, erasing the power of their guilt and their penalty? Sure, as Christians, we'll sin, and we'll sin more in our lives, and we will feel the effects of our sinning. But now we've been given a more effective cleansed conscience, and we know that that conscience now will never let us off the hook, and that's a good thing. The question that arises is, if God forgets all my sins, what on earth is it about me that he remembers? What is it that God recalls about you and me from all eternity? Possibly our good works. Certainly our faith. But most probably our identity in Christ that no longer features condemnation, but now features commendation. All because he's adopted us as his children and clothed us in the righteousness of his his beloved son. God's forgiveness is just terrific. But there's something else to be seen in the psalm. And that is that God's forgiveness brings us to a newfound respect for God. I love what results between an individual and God from knowing his forgiveness. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, It is God's prerogative to forgive, and he delights to exercise because it was, because he has a, a merciful nature and has provided sacrifice for sins. Therefore, forgiveness is with him for all that come to him confessing their sins if you've experienced the joy that comes with his forgiving love, then you come to have the utmost respect and and a great appreciation of God. It fills you with grateful thanks. and, And you want to venerate the Lord and you want to reverence the Lord. And you're in awe of who he is and what he's done for you and what he's done in you. It's like the scriptures tell us that he who is forgiven much, loves much. Forgiveness leads to a recovery, I think, of a healthy fear of the Lord. Spurgeon goes on to say, It is his grace that leads us to have a holy regard for God and a fear of grieving him. Not only that, The mercy of God's forgiveness leads the psalmist to assert his readiness to wait for the Lord. You see it there in verses five and six. Uh, In his waiting, he wants to see the Lord over and in the events of his life. And he wants to take the Lord at his word. In his word, I hope, he says. The anticipation is like someone in a hospital recovery uh, room. Uh, recovering from surgery, suffering sleeplessness, suffering wild dreams from painkillers and disturbed by the frequent visits of the nurses in the dead of night. And there's the patient and they just hang out for the night to end, for the darkness to go and for the sun to come up, for the first rays of of the dawning of a new day to arrive. It's that kind of desire, it's that kind of appetite that a forgiven person has. It's uh, like a patient or it's like a security guard who looks forward to the morning. So the forgiven person looks forward, looks forward keenly, earnestly to to knowing God better, to seeing answers to prayer and outworkings of his plentiful redemption. So be encouraged today. Be encouraged by God's loving merciful, all extensive forgiveness. And in that, be patient, be submissive, keep calling upon God and keep waiting on God's help in the circumstances we find ourselves in this current virus confinement. So in conclusion today, feeling sin in the depths of our being in our bones, in our heart, in our mind, in our conscience, it's a good thing, it's a gift of God's grace as we heard about last week. It's in those depths that we can be assured that God really listens to our cry and is ready to cleanse us and set us free by his full and total forgiveness. And know that at one point we may be broken with a sense of sin, but another point, we can enjoy huge relief and can know an an outburst of joy or an upwelling of joy in knowing that we've been cleansed by God. So being pardoned and cleansed clears the way for us now to go to God. Yes, and even to confess uh, and confess up to God for our sin so as not to grieve his holy name and nature. Knowing all this, it's just part of loving God for loving us. And it's all part of knowing God better and better. We are set free, wonderfully set free to wait on God, to wait for God, and to trust him to work. It's a wonderful position he puts us in. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. dear Father, we thank you for the down-to-earthness of a psalm like this that identifies just how we feel uh, deeply over the matter of sin and how we're made to feel the effects of our sin. But then, Father, for the assurance that you give us that we are a forgiven people, that you are a wonderful, forgiving Lord, We thank you for that. We thank you for the release. We thank you for the relief. We thank you for the new start you've given us in life. And Father, we pray that we might live in the good of what you've given to us. We pray that we may be forgiving people and loving people. We pray that we might be concerned people and compassionate people for those, Father, that are still suffering the dreadful effects of their own sin. So, Lord, bless us, we pray. Take this psalm and... uh, Just uh, underline it to us uh, by your spirit, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.